Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Max Deschoux for the second part of the conversation we began last month. Max Deschoux founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 to document global women's history, track patterns of domination, and the experiences of women in the full spectrum of world cultures. She's internationally known for her expertise on ancient female iconography, matricultures, patriarchal systems, witch hunts, and female spheres of power. She has built a collection of 40,000 slides and digital images from which she has created 130 visual talks on female cultural heritages. Her legendary slideshows bring to light female realities hidden from view. From ancient female figurines to women leaders, priestesses, clan mothers, warriors, and rebels. For 44 years, Max has been presenting these visual talks in North America, Europe, and Australia, and now via webcast and online courses. She's created two videos, Woman Shaman and Women's Power in Global Perspective. Her book, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, was published in 2016. Her work is followed by 156,000 readers on Facebook and thousands more in other places and on her website, suppressedhistories.net. Max, welcome back to Precipice. Thank you so much, Annie. So uh, the timing of this is really good. I'm really thankful to have you here uh, because it, it seems like a pretty good time to take a look at history. Uh, we're having this conversation less than a week since the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that included an act of domestic terrorism, a white supremacist protester driving a car into a crowd of protesters, killing one and injuring 19. And it seems like a really important time to talk history. The white supremacist narrative is based on a concept of white culture and whiteness that when we look back at history, doesn't actually go back so far at all. And, and I'm wondering if we can talk a bit about whiteness or white culture and the circumstances under which it emerged. And another way to say that might be uh, what befell a people or peoples such that whiteness started to look like a good idea. Or that whiteness began to define them. You know, this, this, it's, it's a framework, it's a, a, a naming that is not natural to European peoples themselves. And if you look historically, people define themselves as Norwegian or Sicilian or French or whatever it may be, even subgroups of those, those nations. 
you know, um, tribal Europe going back into the, the early part of the Middle Ages. And so those are ethnic designations. Those are cultural names. And they have to do with language and they have to do with land. And the, what the white supremacists are trying to do is to build on uh, a new construct that happened in the context of colonizing the Americas and the rest of the world. You know, this idea that the white man had a destiny to go out and, you know, conquer and, you know, this inheritance that the Puritans talk about, that, you know, Providence provided us with this wonderful smallpox plague that allowed us to take over the promised land. So they're using biblical narratives there. But this idea of white supremacy was already, or European, they weren't yet saying as white, was already um, wrapped in to the way that the European invasions and colonizations went about. And so then you've got the formation of a state, the United States, in fact, these colonies become a country and in the aftermath of land seizures of, of native countries and, and these takeovers and, and genocides as well. And so over the course of the 1700s and the 1800s and into the 1900s, you have this idea of a white-dominated society in what is basically a racialized caste system. That if you are white, that means you're a free person. If you are African, you're a descendant of someone who was brought over in slavery. And the, the whole slave states that, that grew up in, in the plantation economies of, of the United States. Uh, or if you are of native descent, then you are a conquered being who is by nature inferior. They're not even saying racially always at that point they're saying culturally and they're saying because they're not christian that you know the pope issues documents saying well you know christians have a right to colonize these nations because they need to be converted so that element is in there too and so this growth of a racialized idea of a caste system which white people are over black people are over uh, Quechua or whatever native groups, you know, the, the native Mexicans, the native peoples in North America, there's this layering which is based not solely on ethnicity, but as increasingly during the 1800s, this becomes more and more racialized, even before that. But where it really gather, gathers a lot of steam and speed is in the 1800s. And Nell Irwin Painter uh, talks about the origins of that in the 1700s with some of the thinkers, the, the European thinkers that were had explicitly racist ideologies. She has a book called The History of, of White People. And what it really is is a history of the concept of whiteness. So that they're talking not only about the superiority of whites over people of African descent or of North American descent, but also even the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon over the Mediterranean, quote-unquote, races. So this fixation on race as a category becomes very prominent in the United States. It's not absent from Europe, but it really takes hold a lot in the United States. And you have eminent figures like Jefferson and Emerson, the transcendentalist, who knew that he was so deep into the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. And so there's still 
White is still not being used as the primary term, as you can see from some of the names I've just run off here. But it does become the term. And one of the ways this happens is you've got all these immigrant European groups coming into the United States, coming in, you know, as dispossessed people uh, in the, the working and lower classes of the cities. And there is this whole struggle to not be seen as lesser than because they were, you know, no Irish or dogs allowed signs on taverns, things like that. Uh, the Italians and the Jews facing tremendous uh, social discrimination and prejudice and sometimes violence. And so this it, whiteness at that period, if we look at, you know, the 1800s and going into even the early 1900s, is still not entirely consolidated, although certainly Reconstruction in the South went a long, long way to doing that. But it does become that. But I just want to wrap up this part about the European uh, immigrants because uh, this is this is where some of the reactivity is coming from in, you know, their descendants, is that... Um, they begin to identify as white. That becomes the password into their integration, their acceptance, their mobility and ascendance in American societies. Now, let's back up to the Civil War because we had slavery, which was race-based in the United States. And it was also, it was predominantly and overwhelmingly the enslavement of people of African descent. Not only the African captives themselves but their descendants but it's also includes and a lot of people don't know this there was enslavement of indian people in the east coast and also in california much later in the 1850s under the gold rush so we're dealing with a lot of layers here but it was always based on white supremacy that was the organizing principle for these enslavements so after the civil war you have a reconstruction going on and there is an attempt to of african americans to rise which is very quickly swatted down by the white supremacist uh, rulers in in the south and, and elsewhere as well in the in the north you have the growth of whiteness as a category and so uh, jim crow is put in place in various ways and this is not just the south because you have also on the west coast you have sundown towns where if you're a black person you better be out of town by sundown that's what that means okay so whiteness becomes mm-hmm. the organizing principle of domination and you know it's based entirely on a racialized category and so, you know, that has to do with all kinds of civil rights from owning property, being able to hang on to your property, or even the freedom of your person, uh, whether or not you're an ex- exceptionally targeted for rape and sexual harassment, in the case of Native and Black women, a whole, a whole variety of things that make up that, that, um, that white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so in the early 1900s racism is very what's really interesting about the 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 whole controversy about the confederate monuments is a lot of people don't know they weren't built after the civil war there were some that were you know funeral monuments and cemeteries and they were more of a mourning kind of a thing 
But starting around 1890 or so, and then going through the first half of the 20th century, these Confederate monuments go up, and they are very explicitly tied to a white supremacist narrative. And the, you know, the most egregious example of that was in New Orleans, where there was a monument that basically says, you know, this, that it's to white supremacy. And uh, the mayor took that down, I think, last year. Uh, so what the reason I'm saying this, I heard an interview the other day with a historian named James Lewin, and he talks a lot about how in the early 1900s, there's the growth of this white supremacist whiteness narrative that happens, but also uh, uh, in conjunction with that, there is what he calls the victory of the South which is this increase of uh, Confederate monuments explicitly tied to the political reality of that time, the intense spike in white racism that happens in the 1910s, 1920s, that period in there, 20s, 30s, 40s even, where you have this huge, huge amount of lynchings going on. You have the rise of the eugenics movement happening and these monuments going up. And this is their true historical context. So when a lot of people are saying, well, you're destroying history if you take down these statues or even if you move these statues from their position of places of honor by the state courthouse, by the legislature, Capitol building, whatever, you know, um, primary places of which is what is supposed to be the communal government by the people. Instead, you have people of color being forced to see that every day on their way to work. That man up there, that general on a horse. And in some cases, those generals, like uh, the guy, what's his name, Forrest, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I think, in Tennessee, was a slave trader first, and then he was a Confederate general, and then he was the major leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And so some of these figures, a lot of people are talking right now about Robert E. Lee, but you know, some of these figures are really active leaders of white supremacy. And, you know, this is where the Confederate flag uh, is now all being wrapped in together with Nazi symbolism and all the rest of it in this continuation of an old racialized narrative of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So... One of the thing that was a lot. <laughs> one of the one of the things that is is really interesting about what you're describing is essentially what you're describing is whiteness as the absence of culture. Like that that there's all of these people who came at some point. It, you maybe have oh, to yeah. go back pretty far, but they mean. came back. They came from some variety of intact culture. Um. And some variety of probably land-based and right. and and culture that they could say, "I'm Irish, I'm Scottish, I'm Scandinavian, I'm whatever it is," and there would be a whole set of ways of moving through the world that would come along with that culture. And instead, what you have is you have all these displaced people who, in the absence of that, this this other thing arises. Yeah, and what arises, I would call it's not an absence of culture in one sense, which is that it's weaponized culture, okay? Mm-hmm. This whiteness culture is weaponized culture. But you're right. I mean, for the people 
coming from out of Europe, there's all they, they thought of themselves in terms of ethnicity, you know, and there were conflicts between those ethnicities and there were colonizations, the English of the Irish and, you know, various other examples. But that was, they were in order to assimilate into the United States, the price of admission to that category of whiteness was to give up your culture, lose your accent, stop speaking your language, and sometimes also, well, really, all the time, you know, many of the cultural practices. I mean, you could keep a little bit of local color, you know, in the form of uh, a church festival or something like that, but you lost ethnicity because now you are American, but very specifically, you were categorized as a white American, and so you entered that dominant racial caste. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking about the statues, and uh, and I I was also reading I think some of those same articles that talked about the timing of those statues going up, and that some of them actually went up as as late as the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, that they that they were very specifically put up as a way of wielding power, and and I guess I'd like to to talk about power. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the way that power seems to be wielded in the white supremacist movement, it's a very hierarchical, top down, control based understanding of power, yeah. and and the thing that that is is the the thing about it is that it's a very it's a very overt and sort of bald-faced version of that kind of top-down and hierarchical power but that power that way of wielding power is very much infused in our entire culture and so we see it not just in a rally of white supremacists but we see it in the way that our businesses are run we see it in the way our social justice movements sometimes are run we see it in how we treat the earth in the way that we um, do agriculture with industrial farming. There's all of this very control-based power models infused throughout our whole culture. And I I guess I would like to really tap into history here to talk about whether there are other ways of wielding power that we can look to in history that might give us a little bit of guidance about other other ways to to do this being human (laughs) yeah yeah i mean all of all of what you're describing is characteristic of culture that is based on domination you know and there's all these axes of domination you've got racialized caste you have patriarchy which is very big and you have class systems you know those are those are three big ones i mean you could name others but those and those all entered a lock and especially we see that here in the United States. I mean, it can be very difficult, difficult, if not impossible, to disentangle them. But one of the things that I've been trying to make clear to people, uh, and this is hard because it's especially in academia very often, they don't like you to talk about the matricultures, but to make clear that there are other kinds of societies, other kinds of cultures And this is not a utopian fantasy, which is the usual accusation. There is a real difference between matrilineal, matrilocal, indigenous cultures and the Nazis or, you know, the plantation slavers or even Wall Street. You know, um, the the kind of uh, patriarchal, class-based, racialized hierarchy, all of those things that we see in those other instances 
uh, these 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 mother rights societies, they don't have that. They are really uh, extended family cultures that are uh, egalitarian along the axis of sex. So you don't have the colonization of women's bodies, and you know they will integrate people of other groups, and you know this is other ethnicities, let's say, into their society by adoption by marriage and things like that so there you know there's not like if you look at for example at uh, native north america there are a number of societies like that um that were matrilineal that uh they did not have a war-based economy you know they were very local and they had relations with other peoples around them but they were not attempting to conquer them to enslave them to dominate them you know um the the Wichita people, there's a lot of these groups that we don't even know the names of. Who were the matrilineal societies in North America? And that's just one continent. So you have the Moswo culture in China, which is one of the most egalitarian ones that I've found, where you have, uh, they don't even have marriage. They just, they have basically a freedom to take partners with whoever you want to, and it is not because there's no attempt to identify fatherhood, there are no constraints on women sexually. And in fact, they just it's open. And the clan heads are the elder women who tend to be the ones who survive the longest for one thing, but this idea of them being the linchpin of the clan or the family. And so the men will marry out sometimes. Well, marry is not the right word in this case, but you know they will go out to other settlements and make love and come back and farm with their sisters. And so in these societies, a a patriarchal hierarchy of father over daughter, husband over wife is absent. You know, this has been the organizing principle of the European and many other patriarchal societies. They don't have that. So their power is a shared power as Starhawk would call it, it's a power with, not a power over. And they're collective also within these clans. So everybody, the house belongs to everyone. All sisters and brothers are members of these clans. There's social motherhood. So you don't have a woman stuck over here. Uh, Her husband left her and she's got the kids and she's in really bad shape. You have the entire generation taking care of the children, what you could call social motherhood by the males as well as the females, of of the children of that lineage. So this is a different model. And I think it's important for us to know about because it the, the information about this has been systematically withheld from us. And, you know, it's demoralizing to women to think that we have always been dominated. But in fact, the that that's what we've been told. I was taught that in anthropology class in, in college is that, you know, all societies have always been male-dominated. Now, that position has softened a little, but not all that much, not enough to really have a, a, a general study being taught to students that there are these other societies. Let's not even call them other. There's this, there's an alternative pattern or maybe a group of alternative patterns of social systems that are not based on domination. You know, so that's what we need to know. 
And that that really speaks especially to the axis of oppression on the basis of sex, the colonizing of women's bodies. Uh, that's, uh, you know, when we look at racial caste, then we've got, you know, dynamics that are interrelated to that because all of the European societies that colonized and slaved were patriarchal, without exception. You know, the rise of capitalism is also very much based on the foundation of a patriarchal economic system. It can't exist without that free labor of women already being, that disposability of women as well, being already built in. You know, so when we're talking about all this, we're looking at layers and layers and layers of time. Mm-hmm. Well, so in terms of time, is there, when you talked about patterns that emerge, and I'm wondering, is there a pattern to when when you've noticed or when you've seen the matriarchal societies having existed? You can't name a single chronology for it. It really varies across the planet, which is, you know, I mean, a lot of people ask me, when did patriarchy begin? And it's like, well, if you're talking about southern Iraq, then you can look at the fourth millennium BCE. And if you're talking about uh, Sumatra, then maybe not even until the middle of the first millennium CE in our era. You know, it really varies a lot historically. And and that complexity of history is really important to take into account because, you know, in, in a lot of parts of the world, uh, there you know, there are still societies that exist today which are matrilineal. And they have a hard row because they are all indigenous and those indigenous cultures are under severe pressures from the imperial extraction economy, you know, from whether it's logging or mining, or dams being built, or whatever, or just straight up land seizure. But um, those those cultures have survived. I mean, some people would like to say, oh, there were never such cultures. It's like, you're not even looking at the evidence of those who still exist. You know, the, the six nations of the Iroquois are still around. The Pueblo cultures are still around, you know, and you could name places around the planet. And they, too, are subject to these forces so that, for example, in Sumatra, the Minangkabau people were forced to convert to Islam around 1600 by the Javanese. And so they they made a pact and they said, okay, we will convert, but we are going to keep our Adat Ibu, which means our mother law. And that was the matrilineal and matrilocal social organization that they have. And so, you know, that is very contested now because, of course, in the Quran, patrilineage is mandated. So, you know, as, as the divine law, um, you know, there, there are these various historical exceptions and struggles that go on around all of this, you know, of whether, of whether patriarchal forms will impose themselves or not. Or rather, racialized caste systems will impose themselves as well. Mm-hmm. So we need to take a short break. Uh, my guest today is Max Deshu, founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, part of a forthcoming 15-volume series on the suppressed history of women. You can follow her work at www.suppressedhistories.net. And in a few moments, we'll be right back with this conversation. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Max Dashu expert on ancient female iconography, matricultures, patriarchal systems, witch hunts, and female spheres of power. She's the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion. So we've been talking so far about uh, white supremacy and the systems of power that undergird it in light of the events that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia this past week. And what I'd like to do now, Max, is you mentioned we started to talk a bit about matricultures or matriarchal cultures and some of the characteristics of, of those. And I'd like to delve into that a bit more in the, because I think it's really important for us to hear stories of other ways of, of structuring a society because we're so steeped in this top-down, control-based, male-dominated, uh, capitalistic framework, at least here in North America, it's it's really hard to imagine something else. And and it's not just imagining. There are there are lots of versions of something else that have actually existed. So I'm wondering if we can take some time to dive in a little bit more 
to those cultures that you have studied across the world and across history to learn a bit more about how they did things? Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's there's so many places. I mean, we could look at Taiwan and ancient Nubia and Tanzania and Laos and Eastern Canada. There's a lot of places that are matricultures and or have the history of that because sometimes it gets displaced, I mean, by conquest or internally. Uh, so let's look at a couple examples. Uh, one of the places that I find really interesting and, one, again, one of the most egalitarian cultures that I have found is uh, the Bajagos Islands. And this is off the coast of the westernmost islands off the coast of West Africa. So Guinea-Bissau, they're part of that country. They're near Senegal. And this has been described as a matriarchal society, which we have to understand not as women are dominating men the way that men dominate women in this society, but, you know, that's why I say matriculture, to avoid these, these misunderstandings. You know, it's really just much more of an egalitarian system, which is a mother right system, so that your, your social identity is formed from the mother line that you come from, you know, because women give birth. That's the, that's the reason for that. And uh, in this culture, uh, you have a lot of social, formal social power for women, the women's associations, which manage the economy and law and even the funerary ceremonies. You know, you have, it's one of the places in Africa that I've I've found very few where women dance the masks, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the men also have ceremonial power in their own associations. So this is not a dominance-based system. And they are boaters and fishers and woodcovers. And, you know, they have their own their own spheres of power. This is the way that I conceptualize this as female spheres of power, male spheres of power, but not in a dominance-based system. And so uh, Amilcar Cabral, who was a revolutionary in the 70s uh, in Guinea-Bissau, talks about this history. And he says, you know, we had uh, queens, not because they were the daughters of kings, but queens succeeding queens. And the religious leaders were women, too. So you have indigenous histories that recognize the existence of these other social models. And and Bajagos is amazing for a lot of ways. I mean, the ceremonial gear that the women wear is amazingly beautiful. They uh, paint murals on the the plastered walls of their houses, so they're artists. And there's a lot of ceremony that uh, women carry out. And descent is in the line of the women. And so that's something that you can see as a pattern in various parts of Africa. I mean, there are patriarchies in Africa, but the ones, the societies that are not male-dominated in that classic way uh, are not the ones that we ever get to learn about. So we are told about the empires in Africa and the kings in Africa, and we are not being told about peoples like the Goba in, Zim- in Zimbabwe or uh, the Chewa in Malawi. And Malawi and Tanzania and Mozambique, uh, a little bit of Zambia too, all had matrilineal social systems predominantly. And with a varying degree, some of them have some elements of patriarchy and others do not. But, uh, you know, there too with the Chewa, 
the social system, you have a very strong female power based in the family and women's ceremony. And you also have male spheres of power where the uncle of the line, because fatherhood is not the defining principle, the brother of the uh, you know, a man who is chosen actually by the women of the line to be the male uh, delegate and administrator also has a ceremonial office among the Chewa. And this is a group that had very important female prophets. There was a line of women oracles who were known as Makewana, mother of children is the literal meaning of this. And this wasn't a dynastic arrangement it was a shamanic office that women, girls were chosen, young women were chosen after undergoing initiatory illnesses and various omens would appear and their behavior shifted and people could see something was going on, which they saw the spirits are acting on her. And they would, um, they would inaugurate such a woman into the office of Makewana. So she wasn't necessarily, usually wasn't, related by blood to the previous Makawanas. This is also an egalitarian pattern where it's really all based on the rightness of the person for that position. And so these female oracles in Malawi, the shrine was centered around the pool of Malawi. And the country actually takes its name from this pool. And so they were oracles of the python, and they were prophetic figures who really had a lot of authority and say, not as individuals only, but really because they were a voice for the, the spirit and, you know, were, were seen in that light. So there's a lot of patterns there. There's a woman in uh, another of these societies in Zimbabwe, uh, the, a Goba ancestor named Kasamba. And she founded an important shrine on a hilltop. And then later on, you have kings coming along, and there's there's conflict between this priestesshood and these military warlords, and the priestesses eventually prevail. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole story there that I don't remember all the details off the top of my head. But, um, you know, these are the kinds of historical figures and societies we never hear about. These are the parts of the world that we're never taught a history of unless it's a colonial history. Well, Cecil Rhodes came to Zimbabwe and conquered and, you know, he brought his mercenary armies and made Rhodesia. And we don't really learn that the resistance of the Shona people against this conquest in the late 1800s was led by Nahanda Nyakasikana. And Nahanda is a title, it's a woman, it's a title for the Lion Oracles and this is another lineage that was founded by a woman maybe 500 years before. Uh, so as a spiritual leader, we can talk more about the rebel shamans later on. But, you know, as a spiritual leader, she also becomes a revolutionary resistance leader. Anyway, back to the, the mother right. Let's see, what else do we have? In India, the Khasi people, in the northeasternmost corner of India, they're near Burma, between Burma and uh, Tibet and India, uh, the Hasi are a matrilineal, matrilocal society who are under very severe pressure because they're completely surrounded by a patriarchal Hindu uh, 
culture and as well as the globalized forces that are affecting everybody on the planet, all the indigenous peoples. But they too have this mother rights system and so it's sister, brother, and not husband, wife. And although they do have marriage, but that's not the defining principle of the society. And one of the ways that that's significant is because you never have homeless women and children. You know, if a man leaves his wife, then, you know, she remains in her home. And so there's a stability to these systems that really contrasts with what we see that happens with women in the United States, where, you know, women are, you know, devoting maybe 20, 30 years of their life to a marriage and bringing up children and, uh, you know, doing the lion's share or all of the work in the household and then suddenly they're left and they're in poverty and they have these children to bring up and there's no child care and they're isolated and there's no social support, you know, so, and they're stigmatized for being divorcees. <laughs> so, um, you know, th- there's a, there's a strong contrast between those, those social options. Mm-hmm. Who else? Vanatini is an island that is in if you go way off the northeastern coast of Australia in the Coral Sea, it's one of these little isolated islands. And maybe that isolation helped them, I think it probably did, to retain this this matricultural society because they weren't subject to the same level of invasion and conquest and slaving that were happening in other places, you know, in Indonesia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that society... You have, you know, anthropologists talk a lot about big men and how, you know, uh, quote unquote, tribal societies are led by big men. So they are projecting a patriarchal framework onto all of these indigenous societies, whether or not they had it. Some did. Others did not. In the case of the Vanatini, a woman could be a jaja, which means not a big man, but a giver, giver, literally. And in this culture, status did not come from accumulating wealth. It came from giving it away. And you see examples of that a lot in Native North America also. So the person that shares is the person who is valued and has prestige, rather than the person who has not only a lot of property, but, you know, all these people working for them, and it's just basically storing up wealth. And and that's an important ingredient in looking at how patriarchy evolves is wealth accumulation is part of that picture, you know, even before we can really call it necessarily capitalism in, in some societies, you have this idea of fathers wanting to pass property onto their sons and enforcing patrilineage. And how do we enforce patrilineage? Well, you have to, you have to control women women's sexuality, women's bodies, movement, and ability to do as they please. Otherwise, there's a, a proverb African-American culture has that says, mama's baby, papa's maybe. You know, so that enforcement of patriarchy, all those sexual standards originate from the attempt to control female sexuality in order to enforce father rule, which is what patriarchy means. You know, to enforce uh, male control over women's bodies and over their offspring and over inheritance of property. You know, so that that's a contrast there yeah. with the Vanatini. So 
So, Max, you've been immersed in this history for more than 40 years. And you also live in the, our culture <laughs> as it currently exists. Sadly. And I, yes. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm wondering, as you talk about these matricultures, I guess I'm wondering what, what from what you've learned and what from what you've just talked about we might be able to look to, to, I don't want to, it's obviously not so simple as, oh, we learn about matriculture and now we can shift and we can just have one. But, but I wonder what qualities of those cultures we might be able to start to plant some seeds around us to, to nurture such that perhaps some of these difficulties of our culture around everything you mentioned, social isolation and, and power imbalances and all of that might, there might be some buffer against it. Yeah. Well, you know, for one thing, a lot of these societies really penalize aggression. You know, you lose prestige when you're aggressive. And so, you know, the society we live in actually rewards it. You know, and all of our media is constructed over consuming aggression and domination. You look at Game of Thrones and things like that. Um, just all of all of the suspense movies that people watch, you know, it's, it's, it's based on a love of violence and aggression. Whereas by contrast, in these cultures, there's much more value placed on the life support system, you know, and the reverence for the land that is part of that. You know, the, the, those go hand in hand together. So it's it's more ecological, it's more egalitarian. And I, I don't know, I think we really have to go through a process of, you know, redefining what it is that we value. Because, you know, there is this still this very strong tendency to admire the dominant male. You know, and we saw that uh, as well as, as the, the white supremacist aspect in the, the elections last November, you know, to a shocking degree for at least those who were white and didn't know this was all under the, the surface all along. I mean, it's not new. It's just an intensification of what has been there in the history. But um, I think that we need to learn to value women. That's been a really big missing piece. I mean, women do all this unpaid labor. We need to value the caregiving and the nurturing uh, by anyone. But women were really shouldering the, 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 the greatest load in that, you know. And that goes back again to caring for the earth as well. You know, it's just like, how are we going to survive in the future? You know, because this, what we're, what's happening now is not sustainable. I think many of us know that by now, you know. And so how can we evolve cooperative societies that are living as much in harmony as we can? I mean, you know, the whole, the whole, where our food comes from and where our water comes from and the power that runs our computers and all of these things, you know, we don't yet fully have control of that. Many of us can't afford you know, we're renters, we can't afford to put solar in, you know, so it's going to be a, a development over time. But I think a lot of the positives values are there. I worry about the growth of persecutory uh, culture, not just on the right, but sometimes also, I see it on the left, you know, 
and um, the name calling and capping and smacking down that that goes on sometimes and um, we this is this is something that in these cultures you know going back to not valuing aggression but really trying to think I mean we desperately need coalitions you know all these human beings under different axes of oppression you know the interlocking axes of oppression we all it all counts and we need to deal with all of it and there's no way you can deal with one part and not the others and come back and do that later that never worked for women in all the revolutions to date you know whether you're in algeria or china or russia or on 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 various places you know on nicaragua (laughs) that you know you have women thrown overboard and you still have the continuation of these patriarchal codes. And that's a very significant trunk of domination, you know, the oldest surviving one in, in many ways that, that has to be addressed. But here in the United States, racialized caste has really, uh, it's been unconscious for white people. You know, people of color are very aware of it. And yet, at the same time, it's, it's been very concrete and very real. And so that has to be dealt with, you know. And the mythologies, you know, these, these matricultural societies all have uh, a deep mythic understanding, like a sacred story understanding of reality, you know, on a spiritual level. And yet, in, in this society... You have these mythologies that are about great men and they're great white men and they're men of a certain class and it is a domination-based narrative. I'm seeing on, on the Suppress Histories page on Facebook a lot of people coming out with aggrieved white entitlement and outrage. Well, you can't take down the statues because you're destroying history and you know they're really upset at this idea and they're not really looking at the fact that there is lots of history. There's lots of other history that they know nothing about. And, you know, it's uh, the, most of the statues are not being destroyed. They're being removed. And there's talk of making historical parks to talk about this, this whole talk about this history and not only the civil war and reconstruction, but also the time that the statue was built and what was going on at that time, mm-hmm. you know. So, I'm not I'm not answering your question directly because I think it's so huge. I'm not really able to entirely um, grapple with it. Yeah, yeah. Know? Well, I mean, it, when you talk about things like um, shifting into a place of that we're in this place where we we so much still value aggression and where there's so much sort of persecutorial energy. And, and all these other things that strikes me and, and a, a sort of lack of connection to the mythic. We only have a few minutes left, but it strikes me that what you're talking about is decolonization. That, yes, that there's, yes, some, exactly. there, there's some kind of unlearning process that it might need to be undertaken. It has to happen. You know, and this is something, this is one reason that my, my book series, you know, uh, I'm really trying to look at what happened in Europe and how did these ideologies begin? You know, even before... The 1492, you know, what happened inside Europe and within the slavery and serfdom of Europe and the domination of the church and the definitions of blackness as devilish and whiteness as angelic, that 
you know, are propagated in that context and the demonizing of the ethnic cultures and the goddesses of the folk cultures of Europe and their persecution as devil worship and the way that then devil worship and this whole this whole structure that that was in the European hothouse, that ideology is then exported during the European conquest and used against native people and Africans and Filipinos and people all around the world. You know, so we need that that's persecutory culture. But for looking at European culture and seeing the origins of it, I was really struck. That's something I'm trying to bring forward. Uh, Arvel Looking Horse in Sacred Stone Camp last year was talking at to Standing people, Rock, right? Standing Rock and mm-hmm. Sacred Stone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, was was talking to people of European descent and saying, you have to decolonize your own ancestry. You have to look back into that and find where your truth is. You should not be trying to copy and take our ways. These are our ways. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, the basic message was go back and look at your ancestral heritage and see what you can find of value there. And I think that what you said at the beginning about that having been forgotten and actually forcibly deleted, you know, that was a, a an imperative for people of European descent to forget and delete their own ancestral cultures. You know, if we go back and recover some of that, that is one part of the path, not the way that the white supremacists are doing it, to uh, recovering wholeness, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, so yeah. we need to know we need to know our past. We need to know the ground we stand on. Mm-hmm. It sounds like those of us of European descent really have our work cut out for us in terms of in terms of going back to to really find out what cultures we came from before before those of us who were asked to assimilate into what we now call whiteness were asked to do so. Yeah, and this um, is why I wrote uh, Witches and Pagans, because I, it's a source book for mm-hmm. people who want to do that, you know, to, to begin yeah. to find authentic information, not some of the crazy made-up stuff you'll find out there. <laughs> so we're almost out of time. Thank you so much for being here, Max. We could talk about this for hours and hours. And thank you for helping break the spell of the systems and narratives prevalent in this time in history, a spell that says that these are universal and inevitable and have always been this way. Thank you for showing us that there have been other cultures and other narratives and other ways to live with each other and with the world. Thank you, Annie. My guest today has been Max Deschu, founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion. You can follow her work at suppressedhistories.net. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with Susan Alessic's Nine Prisons, One Key series, focusing on Type 6, The Skeptic Loyalist. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to Pathways to Health for Our World with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, 
and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's health and wellness channel. 